Well, my name is Derek, and I want to welcome all of you guys and those who are with us online to uh, part three of this series called Who Are You? Finding the True You. Today, we're going to be talking about the key to true fulfillment. And I got to say, after I graduated college and I was on my own working in Cincinnati, um, to, to anybody who kind of looked at my life from the outside in or, or looked kind of what I was doing on paper, they probably would have said, man, that is a guy that has found fulfillment in his life. Because, man, it was, it was just such an incredible time. And everything in my life that, that I wanted to go a certain way, it went that way. So um, I, I basically just had one goal when I graduated. I wanted to find that job that I truly loved. And so I, I found this job that, that took my business acumen and my passion for helping people, and it took skills and passion and blended them perfectly together. I was working as, as a business consultant um, in change management, helping different companies navigate through whatever change they were going through in their organization. And uh, man, it was just, it was awesome. I was, I was loving it. And I was getting paid, you guys. You know when you're in college and you, you find $20 in your pocket and you literally throw a party, right? I mean, you have no money, right? And, and so I'm, I'm getting paid. I'm making more money than I ever fathomed I would have in a first job. In fact, then I went into like the nonprofit and the church world. It took me 10 years to get back to where I started when I first had graduated and I was in consulting. So man, I am, I'm making money. I'm having a great time. I'm living in a really cool part of Cincinnati. And yes, there are cool parts of Cincinnati. You haters out there. I'm living with three of my best friends in the world and we're just, we're having a blast. And to top it all off, I'm dating the girl that I was friends with all through college. And finally, our senior year, I managed to talk her out of dating her boyfriend at the time. You know, there's a great line, guys. Drop the zero, get with the hero. All right? So, now that line didn't work. I'm just kidding. But anyway, don't try that one. Um, so, I'm, I'm dating my dream girl. I mean, Everything on paper is absolutely amazing. There's just one problem. I just felt this nagging sense that even though I had it all, something was missing from my life. I couldn't put my finger on it. I couldn't figure out what it was. No matter what I was doing, I just had this nagging sense that there was something more and I just wasn't fulfilled. I think that's why I like the story we're going to look at today so much. Today, we're going to be uh, jumping into the story of Jesus and his meeting with Nicodemus. We find this story in John's gospel. This is one of the four gospel accounts that we find in the New Testament. John, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, uh, writes this down in the third chapter of his account, starting in verse 1. He says, now there was a Pharisee. A man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, what we know about Nicodemus, being a Pharisee, this was a good Jewish man. And Pharisees, they were obsessed about following God's law. He would have meticulously followed every letter of the law. Super devout guy. It also says he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. This was known as the Sanhedrin. Big, big deal in the Jewish nation. You can think of this as like the Supreme Court of the nation of Israel 2,000 years ago. So this is a man very religious, very powerful, and very successful. 
It says in verse 2, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Now, you may look at those words he says to Jesus and think, okay, well, here's this guy coming from the, the Sanhedrin. He's a really powerful guy. And, you know, we know that Jesus is this kind of this rising figure in the Jewish community. He's, he's turning over tables at the temple. He's, he's teaching. He's doing these miracles. And so he's stirring up all sorts of crazy stuff. And so maybe you're thinking, okay, I get it. Nicodemus is on like a recon mission. This is, this is a business trip to go see Jesus and figure out who is this Jesus guy. But there's just one issue with that theory, and that's, it says, he came to Jesus at night. Now, a business trip would have definitely happened during the day. This would have been a very public meeting, would have sent a message. The fact that Nicodemus is meeting with Jesus at night tells us this is not a business trip, this is a personal trip. This is personal business that Nicodemus has with Jesus. And what we're going to find out as we kind of unpack this and we see Jesus' response is there's something, even though everything's going so great in Nicodemus' life, there's something that's missing. There's something, you guys, that draws Nicodemus to Jesus. Notice where he says, we know you're a teacher who's come from God. No one could perform these signs if God weren't with him. So inherently, he knows Jesus is not an ordinary man and he has to meet Jesus. He has to meet him. And essentially, what he's, the question he's asking without actually asking a question is this. Who are you? Who are you, Jesus? I, I have to know. I love Jesus' response in verse 3. He says to Nicodemus, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. You guys, this is classic Jesus. Classic Jesus. John talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He never gives direct responses to the question, ever. It's amazing how he can do this. He doesn't answer Nicodemus's question in the least. But you know what he does answer? He answers Nicodemus's deepest desire. Don't miss this. This is his deepest longing as a truly devout religious man. And Jesus had this uncanny knack. If you've spent any time reading about the life of Jesus, you see that over and over and over again in these accounts, Jesus has a way of seeing right through to the heart of a person. And basically, instead of answering their superficial question, he goes deep to what's really in their heart and on their mind. This is what he does here. He basically is saying to Nicodemus, ah, you want to know who I am? Nicodemus, I know what you really want. You want to experience the kingdom of God. That's what you really want. Now, just so we're all on the same page, I want to just try and define what, what kingdom of God is because Jesus taught about the kingdom all the time. And um, sometimes he, it was referred to as the kingdom of God, sometimes the kingdom of heaven. But it was like the most popular thing that Jesus taught about um, when, when he was on this earth. So just so you know, the, the original Greek, that word kingdom, is the word basileia. And, and that word doesn't refer to an actual physical kingdom, but it refers to the right to rule over a kingdom. Okay, so it's, it's that right to rule the kingdom 
that, where that word basileia comes from. So here's, here's a working definition for you of the kingdom of God. It's the spiritual rule over the hearts and lives of those who willingly submit to God's authority. Okay? Some people think, oh, he's talking about heaven. Okay? No, no, way bigger than that. The kingdom of God is the spiritual rule over the hearts and lives of those who willingly submit to God's authority. So the kingdom of God is this state we are in, we are experiencing, when we are not following our own desires, but we're following God's desires. It's when we are willingly, that's a big word, when we are willingly submitted to the God who loves us and the God who wants the best for us. And what Jesus says is, if you want to experience that, Nicodemus, you can experience that right now, you have to be born again. To which Nicodemus says, in verse 4, well, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Don't you love being able to read these with the hindsight we have today? This is fantastic. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus here, we're not talking about a physical birth here, Nicodemus. We're talking about a spiritual birth. To which then Nicodemus asks this question. It's just, if, if I would have been alive 2,000 years ago and anywhere near Jesus, this would have been the question I would have been constantly asking. Like if I was one of Jesus' disciples and he's teaching in all these parables and saying all this stuff that is like at a depth of level that I can't possibly grasp, he says, how can this be? Great question. Jesus replied, you are Israel's teacher and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. And we testify to what we've seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I was a little shot there at the, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. Come on, guys, aren't you supposed to be like the super spiritual people? And you don't get this? He continues, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? <laughs> He's saying, man, we are barely scratching the surface here, Nick. Come on, babe, stay with me, all right? And then in verses 13 to 15, Jesus starts to use some language that Nicodemus would have been familiar with. He says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, there's some of us that are going, what in the world is he talking about? Moses lifting up a snake in the wilderness. Nicodemus knew exactly what that meant because this was a very famous story among the nation of Israel. Every uh, Jewish person would have known this story. You see, as the story was told, the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. And they were freed from slavery by God and they famously crossed the Red Sea into the wilderness and they're journeying toward the land that God has promised them. 
And as they're in the wilderness, there's this one time where they're at camp and all these poisonous snakes invade the camp and they start biting people and people start dying. This is a massive problem for the nation of Israel. Everyone's dying from these snake bites. And so they cry out to Moses, who's the leader. And Moses cries out to God on behalf of the people. And what you're about to read next is what would have come to Nicodemus's mind as Jesus says to him, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. Here we go. It's, this is from the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 21, verses 8 and 9. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake. He put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now, this is an incredible picture of the absolute grace of God. Because you see, so these Jewish people were, they were, snake bitten and they they needed a remedy, right? They needed a snake bite kit. They needed some sort of a plant that they could extract, you know, some sort of ointment that they could rub on it to reverse the effects. Or they needed to just like cut off their foot or their hand or, you know, whatever got bitten. They needed something that they could do. And in that story that Nicodemus would have known full well, all they had to do was simply look at this snake on a pole. All they had to do was basically say, thank you, God. You are doing something miraculous in our midst. You're doing something that we cannot do on our own. Thank you. All you got to do, just look at the snake, be grateful, you're good. So when Jesus references this story and then he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up, it's referring to himself. What What he's saying then is that he basically is going to be lifted up on a pole as well. And what would that pole be? That would be the cross, where he would be crucified for the sins of the world. And the, the, the reference there, the connection is unmistakable for Nicodemus. That in that moment, all you have to do is simply look to Jesus. No snake bite kit, no ointment, no cutting off of a hand but just simply look to Jesus and say, thank you for doing what I could not do. Thank you, God. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Then Jesus follows with the most famous words in the Christian faith, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. An incredible picture that all we have to do is simply believe that Jesus has done what we could not do. You guys, this was so powerful to Nicodemus that what we see if we fast forward through John's gospel to John chapter 19, and this isn't, uh, this isn't on your outline, it's not, not gonna be up on the screen, but what we, what we see is Nicodemus, who remains a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin. What we see 
is he is at the foot of the cross. And he's not just there as a spectator. He is at the foot of the cross taking down the dead body of Jesus Christ and preparing it for burial. It's had that much of an impact on him, what Jesus says right here. He is willing to risk everything to honor the one that he now knows there's something way more important than than all those signs and all those teachings and, and all those miracles. That he is indeed the son of God, the savior of the world. You know, for, for some of us, it's so easy to, to lose sight of the grace of God. I'm sure there's more than a few of us who've fallen into that Nicodemus trap, you know? Here was Nicodemus following the letter of the law, being that good Pharisee that he needed to be, in fact, doing such a great job that here he is on the Sanhedrin. I know as type A Washingtonians, none of us fall into that trap, do we? We never, it's, it's never about how good we are or how hard we work or how good we look on paper. We never, we never worry about that, do we? And, and that can creep into our spiritual life so easily, can't it? I mean, here in our head, so many of us, we know. It's not about what we do. It's not about what we've done. It's about what Jesus has done for us. And so maybe today, you just needed this little reminder. There is nothing you could ever do to make God love you more than he loves you right now. There's nothing you could ever do in your whole life. No matter how many church services you attend, no matter how many prayers you pray, no matter how many little old ladies you help across the street, there's nothing you could ever do that will make God love you more than he already does. Now, as inspirational as these verses can be to so many of us, they're also troubling to a good number of people. I don't know if you noticed, because you probably heard the verses many times, did you notice how there's this language of rescue that's going on in verses 16 and 17? Jesus talks about how he's come to save the world, to rescue us. And he's come to, to do this so that we shall not perish. A lot of people have a problem with that rescue language. They don't like the idea that they need to be saved. Maybe, maybe that's you today, and that's, that's totally fair. Why, why am I perishing? That offends me. Well, if you're offended by those verses, then you're going to have fun with the next one, because that's even more offensive. Um, verse 18, Jesus continues. Again, he's speaking about himself in the third person. So it's like the originator of that, by the way. I think that's really cool. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they haven't believed in the name of God's one and only Son. What's up with that? What does Jesus mean when he says, whoever doesn't believe stands condemned already? That's harsh. Well, let me try and explain. Anybody enjoy the Super Bowl last Sunday? Any Super Bowl fans out there? Okay, there's like three people. Okay, that's, that's great. You had to at least like the commercials, right? I mean, and maybe some of you like the fact that the Patriots and Tom Brady weren't playing in that Super Bowl for a change. See, there you go. There's a lot of haters like me out there for Tom Brady. But in, in all seriousness, um, when I think about the Super Bowl, I kind of think about Tom Brady because he's in like every single one, right? He's, he's won six Super Bowls. And, um, and 
I got to tell you, um, it reminds me of uh, a 60 Minutes interview I saw with with Tom Brady in it a number of years ago. Tom Brady had just won his third Super Bowl. And he was pretty much at the pinnacle of not just his career, but his life. Like everything he'd ever set out to do, man, he'd accomplished it. And he's sitting there and he's in this interview and they're asking him about it. And how does he feel? And he's like, you know, it's great. But I got to be honest. And I'm quoting him directly on this. Tom Brady says these words, there's gotta be more than this. There's just gotta be more. What Tom Brady had just figured out was the same thing that King Solomon wrote about in that famous wisdom book, Ecclesiastes, of this king who had literally accomplished everything his heart desired and he had acquired everything his heart desired. And when he had done that, he found that everything was ultimately meaningless. Meaningless. That's what Tom Brady discovered. There's gotta be more than this. So how is it that Jesus says, Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Here's how we stand condemned. Because left to our own devices, we run after our own kingdoms and we find ultimately it's meaningless. Left to our own devices, we run after our own kingdoms and we find it's ultimately meaningless. The reason that Jesus uses this rescue language is because Jesus is on a rescue mission, you guys. And the rescue mission that he's on is to save us from ourselves. That's the deal. He actually came to save us from ourselves. Jesus is on a rescue mission to save us from putting our hope and our dreams and our stock in things that will ultimately leave us wanting, leave us unsatisfied and unfulfilled. Because those in this world who basically have had it all have found this truth. There's gotta be more. When I realized that Jesus was on this rescue mission to save me from myself, and I stopped pursuing my own agenda, my own goals, my own desires, and I started going after God's agenda, everything changed for me. Now, when I say everything changed, it didn't change on the outside. Like, it's not like my dream job got any better. It's not like my roommates got any cooler, you know what I'm saying? But in my early 20s, when I discovered this, It wasn't the external thing that changed. It was what happened on the inside of me. And for the first time in my life, I felt a deep sense of purpose and peace and fulfillment in my life like never before. It was incredible. I'm here today to tell you this. True fulfillment does not come from living for yourself. True fulfillment comes from living for God. That's where we find deep, lasting fulfillment. Now, you may say, okay, Derek, that's great. 
True fulfillment comes from living for God. But what exactly does it look like to live for God? I mean, if we had to right now take out a piece of paper or take out our phone and we had to in one sentence say to write down, what, how would you say, what does it mean to say living for God? Okay. What does that look like to live for God? We would have so many different answers to that question, wouldn't we? So what does it, what does it look like practically speaking to live for God? Well, Jesus defined it in two words. Just two words, you guys. Jesus was brilliantly simple in so many ways. He said, you want to know what it means to live for God? Follow me. That's it. You know why Jesus came to this earth? To show us the way to show us the way to live, to show us the way to true meaning and purpose and fulfillment in our lives. Jesus came and we benefit from having the accounts of his life. We can actually see what does it look like to interact with people? What does it look like to live your life? This is incredible. What a gift. And and it's as simple as this, you guys. It really is. When Jesus teaches something, we do it. We don't argue about it. We just do it. When Jesus does something, we seek to emulate what he's doing. And that is where true fulfillment is found. Because what we find is, when we do this, when we just seek to follow after Jesus and do what he do, do what he did, rather, and and just live out what he taught, when we allow Jesus to rule over our hearts and our lives, and we willingly submit to the authority of Jesus Christ, that's when we find life to its fullest. I want to encourage you. Are you fully submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ? We're going to close with a song. And I'm going to invite our music team to come up. And uh, while they do, I'm going to tell you a little story. So we have uh, amazing partner organizations that we get to partner with here at Grace. And um, they're doing incredible work, both locally and all around the world. So many different organizations that are a blessing. And um, I know you're not supposed to have favorites, but I have a favorite, so... There you go. My, my favorite of all of our partner organizations is known as International Justice Mission, or IJM. And um, IJM, what I, what I love about IJM is they, their, their mission is a mission of rescue. Their, their whole goal is to rescue men and women and children from slavery, from human trafficking, from injustice and oppression all around the world. That's their sole aim. In fact, um, because we're a partner organization, we get to hear all the, the cool work and all the cool stories that we are a part of as a, as a sponsoring organization, Grace Community Church. Just a few days ago, um, they successfully ex- executed a, a rescue of 42 people from a sugarcane farm who were enslaved there in South Asia. Um, I've had the extraordinary privilege of going down to the field office for IJM in Guatemala City. It's one of the field offices we partner very closely with. And I was there with a group of pastors, and um, 
it was an amazing time. Spent a couple of days just finding out about more about IJM and meeting the staff and hearing stories, and it was it was so cool. But the thing that, that will always stay with me, the, the, the part of the, the visit that is just kind of etched permanently on my brain, is the very last day um, we got to meet a whole bunch of the kids who've been rescued from just horrible, horrible situations down there. And I just will never forget getting to meet these kids and just the sheer joy that was not just on their faces, but just exuding from their whole person. The, the, the gratitude, the, the thankfulness. And it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, when you've been rescued, when you've legitimately been rescued, you can't help but overflow with love and gratitude for the one who's rescued you. And I'm here to just remind all of you guys today that we have been rescued, you guys. We have been. We've been rescued from ourselves. We've been rescued from lives that, that ultimately will find that they're, they're meaningless at the end of the day, that, that they can never give us the satisfaction that, that lasts, that we truly long for. Because that fulfillment is only truly found in God. So in this song that we're going to sing together, and I want to encourage you, even if you're, you're not someone who really sings, to, to just really make an effort to sing it out because there's something that happens when you do. There's something that happens in you. If you're trying to push into this willingly submitted to the authority of God, you, you want to experience a little bit more of the kingdom, um, take that little step. You, you'll be surprised. You really will. Sometimes, um, willing submission to authority starts with, with, with little things we hold on to. Like just, ah, I'm not going to sing. Give it a shot. Sing it out. I think God would want you to. But I want to read you a couple lines from the song that we're going to sing. We sing these words to God. You came to my rescue, and I want to be where you are. You came to my rescue. And I want to be where you are. I want to. I want to be where you are. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just, you're struggling to kind of find that motivation, you know? You're struggling with your want to. When, when we can somehow get back in touch with the fact we've been rescued, we, we can't help it. We want to be in the presence of God. We want to be living for God. And then the song kind of builds toward the end. And there's these words, in my life, in our world, in our love, be lifted high. And this is just a declaration. Yes, Jesus, we want you to be in a position of authority in our lives. We recognize that's when life works best, is when it's not what we think is best, because we know how that goes, right? But it's when what you think is best, Jesus, even if it's counterintuitive, we want you to be lifted high. We want you to be in authority over our lives. We need you. And just, we're gonna sing that. We're gonna declare that out because this is how we experience the kingdom of God. It's what we all long for, even if we don't realize it. So I'm gonna ask everybody, go ahead and stand up. Stand up with me. And I want, want you guys to sing this out.